KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. The type of person Penn gets, it's a grittier type of kid. The city, the Philadelphia is a grittier type of city. It's like we always have a chip on our shoulders. We always feel like the underdog. Even when we were winning a lot, we tended to not get a high ranking. And, like, and I'm okay with that. Like I like those type of kids who are like, you're going to come here, you're going to work. And our guest this week, Karen Corbett. She is the head women's lacrosse coach at the University of Pennsylvania, the Quakers, one of the elite squads in the country. And Karen, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I'm glad to be here. So as we're talking right now, recording this in mid-July, what's the main focus these days? Yeah, so pretty much the end of June and all of July, we are recruiting. So we are on the road watching tournaments. Uh, We go to tournaments with age-specific kids. So right now we're watching the 2025s. And they are rising juniors. So recruiting is in lacrosse is a year ahead of you know typical a lot of sports. Um, so we have sort of put to bed the 24 class, and those are the rising seniors, and we're watching the rising juniors. So really just on the road watching them at tournaments, we also work a lot of camps. So we have our own camps at Penn, but we also work a lot of different camps, whether they're at other colleges or run by some companies that try to bring in a lot of coaches so that these student-athletes can be seen by a wide variety because they have a lot of choices to make of going to campuses and paying a lot of money for camps that way or trying to kind of spread a wider net for a lot of different coaches to see them at certain camps. So my whole staff, we're out and about across the country. It is pretty much an East Coast sport, um, so our camps tend to be East Coast. I feel like over the last couple of decades, lacrosse has really exploded on multiple levels. Has that changed recruiting is it i don't know if it's ever easy but is it easier to recruit just as far as the sheer number of opportunities you have to see kids play or does that make it harder because there are no secrets anymore everybody's out there and you it's harder to find that diamond in the rough how has kind of the explosion of the sport affected recruiting during your career yeah it's amazing how much it's grown across the country but also the college programs we have about 115 division one women's programs to the 70 some of men's so the opportunities for girls to go and play in college has has exploded and we definitely are seeing kids from california and texas and florida and places that in Oregon, places that we did not see before. And we go out there and do some camps out there. Uh, There are some tournaments out there, but we tend to stick to the the East Coast tournaments and they come here. So, you know, they still have to make more of a trip than, you know, than we do. So I think that's a little bit different for lacrosse. And I think soccers tend to go out west a lot more than us because those kids will still come here. Just the bulk is really on the East Coast, but it's growing. I've had kids from California and Oregon on my team and Texas. Uh, So it's wonderful to see. So how long does it take you? You guys go to the second round of the NCAA tournament to your thrilling run in the Ivy League tournament to win that title. How long does it take you to completely kind of process what the season was, where you were good, where you need improvement, what's coming back, what next year's squad's going to look like, and kind of put it to bed? Like, is it something you do immediately? Like, you're taking stock that week after the season ends, or do you give yourself a little time to kind of, you know, recharge a little bit, then dive back in before you put it to bed? I think it really depends on how the season went. Um, You know, I think in 2022, we had a very rough season, and COVID, for the Ivies, we we lost two seasons. And I think for us, who had a really strong culture 
before COVID, um, it was really hard for us to kind of step step forward through that because the kids that we had, you know, they had never been leaders. They were freshmen when COVID hit. My now, I guess my senior class, they were freshmen when it hit and then they lost that year. And then as sophomores, a lot of them decided to not come back for the spring. And so they weren't here. And then they were juniors. And juniors, you expect a lot of your juniors and seniors as upperclassmen. And they had not really been here and really not have been here for, you know, almost a, a year and a half. So that was hard. And I think I had a senior class that hadn't – a lot of them hadn't played either. So it was a tough culture shock in that that has always been a strength of ours. So last year we really start, struggled in 2022. So the end of that year was a lot of soul searching and a lot of what do we have to change as coaches – to get these kids to understand the work ethic, the commitment that it takes to be an Ivy League champion, to be, make a run in, in, the, in the NCAA tournaments. And so I would say last year it was a lot for me of, you know, reading a lot and thinking a lot about how did I do this when I built the program from 1 and 12 with not a great culture at all. I've got to go back to the beginning. And so that last year was a lot of thinking and a lot of soul searching and what am I going to do and what is a staff are we going to do and how are we going to get them to understand what it takes. You know, we were very successful this year. So you look back on it and as a staff, we were proud that we took the right steps and that they bought in. That's a big part of it is that they bought in and that we were able to turn it around and had a huge turnaround. And so you look back at it, you're proud of it. But, you know, as coaches, last year was last year and you're moving forward. And so who's coming back, as you said? Who's coming back? What do we need to do? What are our challenges going to be as much as we can think about that forward? You know, I think as a coach, you're always thinking about it. You know, whether you're on a break, I still tend to read excerpts from books or entire books um, on vacation. You just you eat, sleep, breathe it as a coach. And we you talk a little bit about COVID and that had obvious real time impacts. Do you feel like you're kind of clear of everything just as far as rosters and recruiting's concerned, clear of COVID because there was all those extra years and, and things like that. Has life kind of completely returned to normal as far as the athletic calendar? You know, the calendar is the same, but I had, as I was speaking about my seniors last year, they were not, uh, some of them decided to not come back in the spring of 21. So I have five fifth years. That is not a normal occurrence for an Ivy League school. So because they took off that semester, I, I have a very big team. And so my challenge, I think, a little bit is how to balance the seniors who want to be seniors with the fifth years who led to a championship season. They both want to lead. They, you know, The fifth years know they did a great job, but the seniors want that opportunity. And so we're going to have a big team because we have these five kids left. Um, and I knew that I needed a big class to sort of fill that senior class, and five of them have remained. I still have a class, my now incoming seniors, some of them could play again. So the Ivies are a little bit behind the rest of the country with that. However, as you talked about, are we all the same? There's so many transfers now. I have two transfers coming in. And I think there's that transfer portal, but there's also kids who are going to get a fifth year. The Ivy League kids are leaving to go play at a lot of schools their fifth year mm -hmm. or their sixth year because we lost two years. So there is that transfer portal has boomed since COVID. But the recruiting calendar, as you're talking about, should pretty much come back to normal um, after this year. 
And you mentioned the, the transfer portal that has made its impact felt, to say the least, in a lot of sports, if not every sport. We hear so much about yes. it in football and basketball because they're the marquee sports on the national level. What effect has that had? And how about name image likeness? Is that something that you had to start to deal with? Are the things that come across your desk now, are a lot of them completely different or brand new from what came across your desk even just five, six years ago? I think for us, it's the transfers. I think the name image likeness, again, you know, last year was a great season for us, so we're not there yet. But, you know, some of our opponents obviously are. I wouldn't say the Ivy League yet necessarily. I also don't think we're going to have the flood, the exodus that some schools are having with the transfer portal. I mean, they're going to give up an Ivy League education. Right. No, it's a different. So we're not losing as many kids to, you know, wanting to go to another school. So it's more of now they're looking at us. Maybe they thought they would go lacrosse, lacrosse, lacrosse and realized, you know, I think I want a little bit bigger balance. And so I'm going to enter the transfer portal and see if the Ivy League is a possibility. But it's it's harder for us to get transfers in. They have to have done very well. And it has to be really early because, again, a fall sport and a winter sport has more time. We need their end of their that freshman year or sophomore year transcript done. And if they haven't tested, there's another issue with that a little bit. So some kids are going to college and not testing at all. We are test optional, but the test helps us. So I think that we have more challenges. We just have a shorter timeline. And they have had to have done really well. You know, it's different than us supporting a kid coming into a, the, the school as a freshman than a transfer. So let's talk about your story in the sport. What's your introduction to lacrosse growing up? Yeah, so I'm the last of four girls. Uh, my mom was a coach. Uh, my mom is actually 94 years old, still alive. And she played field hockey, lacrosse, and basketball in prep school growing up, went to Vassar College and played field hockey, basketball, and lacrosse. And so we all kind of followed in those footsteps and played those sports in high school. And she was our coach um, in fifth grade, so our beginning coach. And then three of us went on to play Division One field hockey and lacrosse. And so I, being the last, it was sort of, this is what we're going to do. And um, there weren't as many lacrosse programs that were also academically strong. Um, so it was just a smaller group. And it obviously wasn't, we didn't play in tournaments and things like that. Things were a lot different. But I was lucky to have played both sports in college. I actually was... I, more I got a field hockey scholarship because my high school field hockey team was really good. So I was able to play both, uh, which I loved. And then after that, I decided – I thought I might wanted to teach and coach. One of my sisters did that. But then I thought, you know, what I really love is the, co- is the playing and the coaching. And so I'm going to give that a shot. So I ended up coaching at a high school. I'm from North Jersey, Chatham, New Jersey. And I coached at a private school called Oak Knoll. Uh, field hockey. And then I actually commuted to Rutgers and coached lacrosse there. So I got a taste of the college level a little bit there. And then the the head coach, uh, Denise Westcott, she actually left to go be a head coach somewhere else. And so they were going to interview me. And, and I thought I had a good shot at the job at 23. And I thought, I don't think I'm ready for this. And I think that you want a good match of a school with who you are. And I, I knew I would have to be at Rutgers for a really long time. And I thought, you know, I'm not I'm not really sure that I want to do this. So I think I'm going to um, – and I don't really know if I want to give up field hockey. So I decided to – to coach field hockey and lacrosse at Division Three at Drew University and then went on to um, go back into the college ranks. I actually got out of coaching for a year and started an after-school program for middle school girls because all my friends were getting married and having kids, and this is what I was doing. And I thought, you know, it's all, this comes naturally to me, so maybe I will try something else. And then Penn opened up, 
and Princeton opened up. And my family is a Princeton family. Yeah, it's hard to say that. But uh, so I thought, well, the Penn coach had been here for a really long time. And I thought, you know, if I really want to be a head coach, maybe I can work under her. And then when she leaves, you know, maybe I can step right into the Penn job. And she ended up hiring alum. And I went back to Chris Saylor, you know, who is a Hall of Famer, Fame coach at Princeton who had recruited me. And I said, Chris, I know I missed the deadline, but this is why I thought I really wanted – I know you're going to be here forever, and I want to be a head coach, and I'd love to to come back, you know, come and work with you. And she luckily gave me the job, so I coached there for a couple years, which was great. So um, – and then Penn opened, and I ended up deciding to put my name in the hat, and, and I got it. And here I am 23 years later. You went to William & Mary. Yes. Correct. Was lacrosse your favorite I mean, you played all those sports. Was lacrosse number one on the depth chart or was whatever you were doing at the time number one on the depth chart? Whatever I was doing at the time, for sure. I think I got more recognition in field hockey. So basically, I love them both. But what I felt about lacrosse, it was different than hockey. Hockey to me is a little bit like soccer. The right back marks the left wing. Once the game starts, it's not a lot of coaching. It's really the practices that are so much fun and the preparation for that. Corners, you call a lot of plays for corners. But lacrosse, you can win and lose a game by good coaching or bad coaching. And so for me, it was what kind of defense are you going to run? You change your defenses. You change your offenses. You call different plays, different motions. And so it's more like basketball. And so I think the coach, the the correct timeout call or who you're playing, it's not always the, the best kids. It's the kids that play together more or the kid that can dodge and get to goal versus the kid that can feed. Are you going to set up a scoring play from a feed? Are you going to – you know, so it's a lot more fun. Um, I had more fun coaching lacrosse because I felt that you could beat teams that on paper maybe you shouldn't because of great coaching. And also I feel that the college game is so different than the high school game in lacrosse versus field hockey that you can coach kids to be exceptional because there's such a big high ceiling for them to grow. And also I do think lacrosse is an easier sport to pick up. So I, some of my best kids had played soccer forever and thought that was going to be their path. And that's really hard to go to college and be a soccer player. Whereas, you know, lacrosse, if they had good eye-hand coordination and they played basketball or soccer, I could teach them the sport. That has changed a little bit because now kids are playing kind of all year and so they're better. But at that time, I knew that I could take an athlete and make them a great lacrosse player. And so I think that's been my strength is having kids reach their potential. When you were playing, did and you kind of talk about from basketball or soccer going to lacrosse, did the field hockey skill set overlap with the lacrosse skill set at all? And if so, what specifically really translated or helped from one sport to the other? Yeah, I think so many sports um, help each other. You know, even tennis, a, a volley is when you're digging out a volley, it, it at times can be as you're trying to, um, you know, go down and get a low, low shot or a sidearm riser is like a flick in field hockey, right? Um, so there's a lot that overlap. I think field hockey and soccer, it's about your mark, understanding ball side, goal side, those kind of things. Basketball, it's picking 2v2s, understanding a pick and roll, having to play both sides of the ball. You know, the press is, you know, similar to a ride, but on a much bigger space. So there's just so much that it's funny because when you coach kids today and you say, okay, do any of you play this? They're they kind of not as much. And it's much easier. It's a quicker transition to coach a basketball player to play lacrosse, in my opinion, than anything else. But the endurance of a soccer player, the physicality of a soccer player is also really helpful in lacrosse. And then field hockey just sort of 
positioning, understanding kind of angles, cutting off the ball, intercepting the ball, that's similar in lacrosse. Growing up playing sports, and I asked this question to just about everybody, like, when did you realize you were good? But it seems like you were in a situation where it was such a part of life and you were playing it so much and everybody in the family is playing sports. Maybe there wasn't the kind of that aha moment that I seem to be better than others. Just You were just immersed in it and it was just, this is just how it is, right? Yeah, I mean, I would say that when I was real little, like I was faster than a lot of kids and I was always coordinated. Uh, I played tennis and stuff growing up. So the coordination was easy for me. But I think just knowing that my sisters could do it mm-hmm. and following them, then I knew I could do it. So why William and Mary when you were looking at uh, where to go to college and where to play? Yeah, so William and Mary at that time was in the top 10 for lacrosse, field hockey top 20. And I really wanted to go to an academic school as well. And so really there weren't a lot of schools that played. I would say the academic schools at that time that were good at lacrosse um, were Princeton and Harvard and Virginia and William and Mary. Lafayette was real strong at that time. Um, And so there just weren't a lot of options, really. So I knew I wasn't going to go to a state school. I had a sister who went to Princeton and played. I had a sister who went to Lehigh and played. So, you know, we had gone to private school growing up. I went to private school up until 10th grade and then public school. So my family just really valued education. And so it came down to, as I, you know, looking at the Ivies and William & Mary, my top two choices were William & Mary and Princeton. William & Mary was kind of wanted to set my own path a little bit. I was really just recruited for field hockey there because the lacrosse coach had really never seen me play. And so she kept talking to me about field hockey when I was like, no, I know I can play lacrosse here. Uh, Whereas Princeton, I was recruited for both. And I think there was a part of me deep down that I wanted to do my own thing. However, there was also a part of me was like, how are you going to give up a Princeton education, Karen? Like, how are you going to do this? So the timeline was different than now. And because I was a field hockey player for Princeton in the recruiting process, they have a basically a, a signing date in February at that time, field hockey did. And so at that point, we pushed Princeton to look at my application to see if they thought I had a good shot at getting in. And my SATs were not so great. So unfortunately, and I was a legacy, but unfortunately, they look, came back and they said, we're not, we're not sure that this is going to happen. And I didn't want to turn down the scholarship at William & Mary. And so I ended up at, at William & Mary and had a wonderful four years. When you start college athletics... Was it a big step up? You know, was it like, wow, like, was there a big transition speed of the game, stuff like that? Or did you feel pretty comfortable that you were ready? It's better, but I'll be fine. I had played Olympic development field hockey. So that used to be the old way where you would go to D camp and then you'd get asked to C camp and you'd get. And so I had been in that process playing against college kids already for field hockey, not necessarily for lacrosse, but for field hockey, I had already played against college kids. So I knew the speed I had played on turf before because of the Olympic development. So for me, that was not a real change. And I was always a kid who wanted to be in shape. So I was always, you know, in shape and I was willing to say, I got to be overprepared. So field hockey really wasn't a big change for me, and I think that gave me the confidence for lacrosse. So I started field hockey right away at William & Mary, and then lacrosse I did not start at first. And then she put me in to take the draw, which is like the face-off in men's lacrosse. So she put me in as a freshman to take the draw because she thought I was good at that, and then I just didn't come off after that. So then – I got to start the rest of the time. What was the balancing act of two sports at the varsity level? I know when we're talking, you know, it wasn't 
quite the 12-month year yeah. that college athletics have become now. There was a little bit yeah. more, of, for lack of a better term, dead time, you know, where the one sport wasn't active. So did it just kind of flow where you weren't really missing much and once one wrapped up, you were ready for the next? Did you Were there some weeks where you had to decide, well, am I going to do spring workouts or am I going to play this? Like, how'd you handle it? Luckily, well, at that time, a lot of the head field hockey coach was the assistant lacrosse coach and vice versa. And so they didn't have a lot of fall practices. And I mean, I know I remember looking at times watching them practice and feeling like, am I going to get behind? But it wasn't what it is today at all. And also the seasons were a little shorter. So we would play field hockey. And most of my teammates were dual athletes. It was rare to be the just a lacrosse or a hockey player. So it was more natural. It was more normal that so many people were doing it. But I also played indoor hockey. So we'd go right from field hockey, indoor, indoor hockey. And then we would start lacrosse, but we also started a little bit later. We started, there was a thing at William & Mary called Feffy's Follies. Feffy was my coach. And all of the colleges would come to William & Mary for a preseason tournament like the first weekend in March. Schools are now starting their first games the first weekend in February. So you just, there's more time. If a kid wanted to play two sports, there is more you know, there was there's less time for them to actually get ready for lacrosse, whereas we had a little bit more time. We'd start in January, but the games weren't until March. So we had some time to, like, get back into the lacrosse mindset and, and what that game was, where it's just not po- – it's really hard. There are a couple Ivy League kids that play both. You have to be exceptional. During your time at William & Mary, uh, you have success – in both sports, when you think to your college career, what are your favorite memories? Definitely my teammates. Um, my coaches were great. I had a lot of fun. They made it fun. But I think they, my team was really competitive, especially in lacrosse. And just having that mindset that, that you take the field and that you can win the game and that you're better than people was just so confidence building. But being around teammates that always – it wasn't good enough for them. One more. We'd say, oh, can, you know, if you messed up a, a – if you were in field hockey and, you know, your coach passed you a ball and you flubbed it, can I have another one? Can I have another one? Like you just – you were surrounded by those people that wanted to be the best they could be. And for me, those were just great memories. Just it's, – it's so wonderful to surround yourself with people who – have the same goals of you as you want to work as hard as you and also we'll have fun together and although we compete every day we'll go out to dinner and you know we and and just have fun together and so that is what I remember of college sports and those life lessons the tough times that you have to go through that it didn't have a good game and you know, you got to make up for that the next time or you're not good at something I had one game you know I'll always remember this I was in field hockey and I I let my goal, my goalie called the ball, it was a cross, and I, I stepped out of her way, and my kid ended up tipping the ball right behind her and scoring, and and I remember, oh my gosh, that feeling of letting your team down, but then the next day we had another game, and my coach just hounding me on how to mark, how to mark, and that, you know, you messed up, you're going to learn to do this, and you're going to be great at it after, and it didn't scare me, it made me more driven, um, the failures made me tougher and made me want to excel more. And I hope I can give that to my kids when I coach them. We need to take a break. We will have more with University of Pennsylvania head women's lacrosse coach Karen Corbett right after this. This is one-on-one. And we are back on one-on-one, continuing our conversation with University of Pennsylvania women's lacrosse head coach Karen Corbett. So after college, you still play lacrosse for several years at what, the U.S. Mm-hmm. on the, the U.S. team? Yeah. What's that? experience like? Yeah, I think that 
you know, the tryouts I started to try out when I was in in college, and that was always, you know, intimidating uh, by some of those players. But it was such a great experience to see the level that you hope to aspire to become. become. And and so when I played, and I ended up, I was on the on under-23 national team, but I got mono, so I couldn't play against England when they came. Um, and then I was on a couple, I was on, there was a developmental team that I was on, so they decided to split the team into the top team and a developmental team. And that was great because I was able to really gain confidence in that and feel like I was one of the better players and then get asked up to the elite team. I never got to play an international game, unfortunately, and then I ended up stepping away from playing. So I had played club in Philadelphia area and enjoyed that and played with some great college players. But, you know, we weren't training like you do in in college. (laughs) So it was just a different ball game. But it was fun to play with those women who were so good and and people that role models that I looked up to that thought were amazing players and to be able to play on the field with them and practices was just, it was amazing. Do you remember a moment like to that point where you kind of took stock of and looked around and like, wow, I'm right there. I'm playing with these people that I've watched and heard about and I'm on that level that that had to be incredibly fulfilling to like when you have that moment of complete realization of that. Yeah, I would say that that, you know, I think one of the reasons I did step away, though, is I definitely started to feel not as confident playing with them. So I got pulled up to play with those amazing women, World Cup players. And there was a p- moment where I felt that I I don't know if I'm as good as them. And will I ever actually make it to that level? And I didn't feel that I could put the training in either. And so that's when I stepped down. So I would say I got on the field with them at practice and was in awe of them and probably let that too much in awe kind of I lacked a little confidence playing with them, I would say, in the end of it. So I walked away. That's an incredible amount of self-awareness that you honestly don't usually see Mm -hmm. at high level. Were you aware of that, that you were looking at this in a way that a lot of people don't? Yes. And, you know, I, as a coach now, and knowing all that is available for my players with a sports psychologist, I wish that I had had that opportunity in that moment to talk with somebody because I think I doubted my abilities. And so when I see my kids doubt their abilities, I try to immediately get them in to talk with a sports psychologist because when I see their ability and I see what they can do, but their mind is holding them back, I want them to do that work, to get through that, because I did not do that. And it just was not what you did, you know, in, in those 93, 94, go to sports psychologists. I don't even know if we even knew about them. So it wasn't, you know, sort of like in my head, why am I so unconfident? And what do I, you know, and instead of being able to talk through that with, you know, a professional because I do think I had the ability to play, but I think I was, you know, holding myself back a little bit with that confidence. And so when I see that with my players, I want to give them that opportunity to, to break through that and be the player that I, that I know they can be. So when you start coaching, what's the biggest lesson you have to learn? And I just mean about coaching itself, not at a certain level or a certain school or whatever. Just what was the biggest thing you had to learn about what it takes to be a head co- or just to be a coach. Yeah. I did have some amazing people in front of me. You know, my coach, Fevy Barnhill at, at Wayman Mary, was a tremendous coach. I got to work under Chris Saylor, 
who is an amazing coach at Princeton. I learned a lot about scouting through her and recruiting. You know, there's just the scouting piece is big, right? How do you play a team that, you know, like I said before, that on paper is a lot better than you. They have many more All-Americans. And how do you, how do you get your team to, to, to rise to that? I would say one of the biggest challenges for me was getting my team to actually believe they were good. When you have lost a lot, it's hard for them, hard for kids to take the field actually believing they're going to win. So that was a challenge. I, I thought when I came to Penn, again, they were 1 in 12, that I could turn the program around in three years. The AD at the time was like, that's, this team is in shambles, and that's going to take you a lot longer. And I was just – I was convinced that I could do it. But changing a culture, you know, that is really at the bottom takes a lot of time. And, you know, when I got here, I thought, what's well, Division One? Well, there's definitely different levels in Division One, and, and when I got here – it was very different. I would, you know, sell, tell them they had lifting at a certain time and something, well, I have a, have a sorority dance. I'm like, wait, what? You know, so it was a big jump from my playing days coming to Penn in their commitment level and understanding what it took. So that to me was a huge challenge because I was just, as I said before, my team at William & Mary was, they pushed each other and they expected to win and they did the work that expected to win. And when I came to Penn, they had no idea what that would even looked like. So trying to recruit kids that are going to buy into your vision, knowing you're not there and still having to compete against the Princes, the Dartmouth, the Yales at that time who were top in the country, that was much more of a challenge because my players at Penn did not believe if they really believed they were that good, they wouldn't have come to Penn. So it's trying to get those kids that are here to try to believe and push them and get them to that level, but then also recruiting kids that want to be a part of that turn. And some want to go to an established program, right? And as an established program, I try to you know get those kids to me. But for me, that was a, a really big challenge because I just thought, why would you do something if you don't want to be good at it? Why aren't you going to put the work into it? To be, you're here, so work on it. And also, my mom is a straight shooter. She tells me when I don't do things well. That's a challenge, and that's become more challenging, to be honest with kids about this is why you're not playing. You don't do X, Y, and Z. For them not to take it as a personal attack because I never did that. So it was learning to – kids aren't always like me and how do I reach them in a way that's that gets them motivated and doesn't shoot their confidence. So it was a lot of growing and I made a lot of mistakes. But I think the biggest thing to be a good coach, you have to be able to look at yourself and what was your part in the good and what was your part in the bad? What did you not do well and what do you need to change? As I always ask my kids to grow – themselves all the time. I have to do the same. I have to hold myself to that same standard. And so learning that over the years has been a challenge for me, but it also has been fun for me to always challenge myself to be better. I think you said when you took over three years, you thought it would take... I thought it would take three years. Was there a, a reason behind why you picked three years? I just thought if I could get in there and really you know, teach them the game and scout well, that we could beat some teams. But anytime you take over a program, and I've seen coaches now, and I talk to them a lot about this, what is the biggest challenge that you don't think of is that once you get your first class in, the classes that are there think you like them better. And so there's always that chip on their shoulder. And even if they're playing, even if they're starting over the freshman that you recruited, they still think you didn't want them. And so until you can get all your kids in that you actually recruited, it's really hard to turn it around. Unless you had a good program to start, right? But if you're coming from 1 in 12, there's always that problem of 
you know, you like them better. And then then the kids who are low, why is why is there such a battle? Why do the upperclassmen not like the underclass? There's just that and trying to bridge that when they already feel that you, you know, you, you, I'm left over is, and it's just hard to get through that, you know? And so that was, I never expected that at all because I play the best kids. I don't care if they, I recruited them or I didn't recruit them, but that's a challenge. And most coaches have that challenge and you don't know it until you go through it. When is the first point and it might not be a winning season or anything, but was there a, a moment, that first moment when you felt like things had started to turn and it might not be a game. It might just be the reaction from the kids yeah. in a meeting or you came in early one morning and they were there on their own without you saying anything. Do you remember when you started to feel like the train was turning in the right direction? Yeah, I have a couple of mo- moments in, in different steps. So I would say the first step, the first baby step was, you know, when we would lose a game uh, my first couple of years, my first year or so, they, you know, when you talk to them at the game, you can see them, their eyes are like wondering what kind of brownies their mom brought for the tailgate. Like they just didn't care. They had lost so much. And we went to overtime with William and Mary and they, you could see that they were visibly upset after that loss. And I thought, okay, like they get this, like they were this close and they got a somewhat of a taste of winning and it's going to be different next week, right? And it was, again, it took a long time, but I felt that. I felt that they actually cared um, rather than the defensive, we just lose. That's okay. And then I would say, fast forward to, um, I had a really wonderful senior class in 2006. And I remember um, they just really put lacrosse right under academics. You know, they, it became so important to them. They were out on the field all the time. Um, just working on their game because we have less practices than the, than the non-Ivies. And they were always out there and doing what I asked and just fighting and never giving up in a game. And we went to play Princeton away. And I remember getting pretty emotional in the pregame speech and just saying how proud I was of this team and that they're ready, that they are ready to beat Princeton. And we ended up losing by one. It was heartbreaking. And then the next – and we lost to Dartmouth by one. And the next year, I remember thinking I have to – they, they have to believe – I have to believe 100 percent in my heart that we can beat these teams so that they feel that. And we were doing – we were just knocking off teams in that 2007 year. And we were playing Princeton uh, at night. And Princeton had, you know, perennial winning the Ivy League. And Penn had not beaten Princeton in 25 years. And I didn't – so I didn't really know that. Like I knew that it had been a long time. But before the game, um, and it was a big game, it was going to be who was number one in the region and then who was going to win the Ivy League. So in the game, in the pregame, one of my players says to me, Karen, uh, can we talk after you're done? I said, yeah. So she said they each had a ball and she said, so we have 25 reasons why we're going to beat Princeton tonight. There were 20, happened to be 25 of them, right? We hadn't beat them in 25 years. And some of them were silly. Like I had an assistant who had, I had coached at Princeton and she had had braces on all through her four years of college. And they said, Shaner has to win an Ivy League championship without braces. And, you know, some of them were, you know, they're just 25 reasons. And the, the last one, my goalie said, when Karen came to Penn, we were one in 12, Tonight we will be twelve and one, and I, I didn't know that. I, so I just got shivers, and I was like, "They're going to win. They want to win this, and we're going to win." And I just felt it walking onto the field. And so we ended up beating Princeton, and it was an exciting game, and that just turned it around. And you know, it was it was we were always at Princeton's heels the last years before, but this team really believed it, and we took it to them. And we won, went undefeated in the league. We went undefeated for the next three years. We went to the Final Four. They just believed. They finally believed, and they had put the work in. But that belief really turned the corner. And so when we beat Princeton, 
and again, I had such respect for Chris and that program I had coached with her that you feel like we've made it. We've made it. And so just kind of from there, it's been great. How tough was were the early years on you, someone who's used to at a high level, and you know what you're building towards and you understand, but you're still losing more than you are yeah. used to. And yeah, it's trending in the right direction, but it can wear on you yeah. even when you, and I think your first winning season was 04. Am I correct? Yeah. So four years. It, you know, it took a little longer than you thought. Yeah. And were there moments during those early years where I don't say you want, you doubted yourself, but you started to look out the window like, man, yeah. can I get a break here? Definitely. I think that, you know, with recruiting, when you, you want to go against those rivals in the recruiting, but you're never getting those kids. Like, I could never get those kids. And so there's a time when you're like, I got to have the horses. <laughs> you know, how are you supposed to win if you can't get those kids, right? You can develop your kids all you can, but if you can't, you need to have a break. You need to get a couple of those kids. But yes, definitely. I felt that not so much the losing, but more so the battle with the kids. I felt like, you know, I am a di- I, I discipline in that, like, there's right and wrong, there's black and white, but it's also like, why am I always fighting them to do the right thing? Like be on time and like just standards that I just hold for myself as a person that they seem to battle back at. So I, yeah, I would say that probably the the first year, you know, you're winning some games and the kids are like, this is fun. And they wanted the change. The coach had left because they kind of went in to do that. Second year, you know, you have higher expectations and they're like, whoa. You know, like, what are we doing? I'm like, well, we're going to win. Like, that's what we're going to do. So you're harder on them the second year and you're adding harder games and you want them to, you know, still learn to win. We had to add teams that we could beat so that they would learn how to win. And then your third year, like, oh, my gosh, it's just it's a it just feels like a beat down. You're constantly you just want to coach. And yet you're constantly teaching these life lessons about being on time and picking up the balls and bringing the stuff and how you represent, you know, what you do on the weekends and you know, your name on your chest means a lot. And it's just not a club sport. And, you know, so I would I would go away. I love California. I'd go away. And I was like, I got do I want to do this? You know, and I kept thinking about that. And then when Julie Shaner, now Shaner Young, I coached her at Princeton, and she came to turn help me turn the program around. And she had been a soccer player at Princeton as well, who they were turning that program around. She played lacrosse at Princeton, which was always good. So she had been a player in that situation. And she said, Karen, we're so close to getting all our kids. I'm telling you, as soon as you get all your kids, it will be different. And I was like, I just don't need to discipline. Like, I just don't feel like being a jerk all the time. And it's what I feel like I'm doing. And then, you know, she was right. I was like, just stick it out, Karen, stick it out. Your your vision, what you're trying to do is right. You're, you know, and you're trying to not just win at lacrosse, but you're trying to teach them lessons that will help them succeed. And you got to stick with it. And I benched some kids who are my best players because they didn't work hard. And you're sitting down there and you're, you know, you need to win and you know, this kid could help you win. And you had to look at that big picture at times and be like, you know, I'm going to lose this game, but I need to show the other kids. If I really mean work hard, I'm not going to play her just because she's good and she's lazy. I can't. So yes, as a, as a young coach, when you have to prove yourself and you make those calls that your vision is more important than that, win that day is really hard, is really hard. But you will get there if you stick to that. And I think that's the biggest challenge for a young coach, especially, who hasn't done it before, who's not really sure what they're doing is right, to give up a, a win for down the road and what your culture should be. So you talk about that 2006 team and beating Princeton. Well, 2007, we beat them. 2006, we were close. Yes, okay. So I credit that class a lot. 2008 is the year you guys are, at for a long stretch, the number one team 
in the country? So no. So what happened in 2007, we, we got a top four seed in the, in the NCAA and everyone was really angry about it. <laughs> so they didn't think we deserved it. And it was at Franklin Field actually at Penn and we played Northwestern in the semis. We got killed. But we beat Maryland in the semis. So that was – or in the quarters. And that kind of was like, wait, what do you mean? Right? So we were called the Cinderella team. We weren't even ranked in the top 25 that year. And then the next year they didn't rank us in the top 25 again. And you know, I knew and our team knew like – that's ridiculous. Like, yeah, we got Northwestern beat us pretty badly, but we're good. And we just had not been on that stage before. And so we went, Northwestern had been undefeated. We went, I think we lost to Stanford early and then we just ran the tables on everybody and we played Northwestern. We beat them. So they hadn't lost in like two years and we beat them. And then we go to the NCAAs again and we are the second seed. And we ended up beating Duke in the semis and playing Northwestern. And we ended up losing by three, I think, that year. And then the next year, same thing. We ended up, I think we played Northwestern in the semis and we went five overtimes and lost. And then they killed UNC the next, in the finals. So that was like, and we'd gone 7-0 and in the league and, and all of that. And so that was our final four run. And then we were always competitive after that and went to the NCAAs every year, except for last year, the 22nd. So when you, that first time when you guys are going at that level, how exciting is it and were you able to enjoy it in the moment what i mean by that is it's just so much work and there's so many things and you're scouting it were you able to take moments and just take a deep breath and just kind of look around and even point out to the kids like yeah look what we're doing here i'm not saying just be happy to be here but this is special yeah i think in 2007 when i was at penn we were we were happy to be there. But I think in 2008, it was at Towson. We knew the Final Four would be at Towson. And I knew I had a great team returning. And one of my players on my team, Barb Seaman, her dad was the Ted head men's Towson coach. And we were driving down to play somebody, I can't remember, down south. And I asked him if we could come and get on the field, you know, just in the middle of the day on our way there. And I brought the team out to the field and I said, this is where we're going to be. On Memorial Day weekend. You got a taste of it last year and we weren't quite ready, but we're going to be here. And it was great. And I think they had that mission in their minds from that. And we ended up back at Towson in the Final Four. So I think that, you know, that year it was a drive to be there again Um, because we'd been there. But we, you know, again, like we were a little bit out of our league, nervous, like, what are we doing? We had not played, you know, we'd played Northwestern before. So at least we had played that team. But you know, it was a big stage, and my team had never been on that. But I think the next year, next two years, we were ready. Does success like that change things for the program as far as – I'm sure it does. I should say, how does it change things? Are you getting into recruiting living rooms that maybe you weren't before? I would imagine all your calls are returned. Is it easier to schedule, or is it hard to schedule? Because now nobody – you know, nobody wants to take a chance with you. Not take a chance, yeah. but you're not a you're not a W. There's no upside to playing you if you're going to get your <laughs> rear end kicked. Like you know, so yeah. did it change life? That, it changed, that success? Yeah, it changed life a lot. I think one is when your team goes to a Final Four, they play with a lot more confidence, and they've been there, and they know what it takes, and they know that what they're doing works. So that's always helpful. I think that you know opponents did want to play us then, which was great. They were like, oh, well, this you know they're a good they're a good win if we can beat them. The recruiting definitely. We had kids who, again, who it was a no-brainer they'd go to Princeton, and now they're like, now they're that whole. Or she couldn't just say we just beat, we beat everybody. Like they they can't do that anymore, right? So we're in that that conversation now 
of, you know, we're good and you're going to come here and we're going to develop you. You know, we never get the top recruited class in the country and we're not going to. We have no scholarships and so we're just not. But I think now the situation has changed where the Big Ten and the ACC have gotten so big that what you're saying that they might not want to play us is true. Like they have dropped some of us because they're like, my conference is so hard. I'm going to play. A, I'm going to get a win. And we're a, we're a loose cannon for them. Right. Because we're we play up. My team plays hard. You know, do we have as many top recruits as some of those teams? No. But, you know, we took B.C. We were really close to B.C. this year who ended up in the semi. You know, so they, they know that some of us are going to be in there and they got to bring their game. And so I think that that's been a challenge. I haven't been able to schedule an ACC team in the last couple of years, which has been frustrating, but they have like nine or 10 teams in their conference. So it's hard. Um, so that's been a challenge because I want to have the RPI. I want to play a good schedule. But I think in the last couple of years, that's become harder for me to schedule. So back then it wasn't because people were like, everybody wanted good teams on their schedule because the conferences were sort of kind of up and down a little bit. And now it's harder. Do you prefer games or practice? From your role as a coach, is it more fun, the competition of game day, or do you prefer, when it comes down to it, to working with the kids and just seeing a kid get better and doing it in a group of three on the yeah. side, stuff like that? Is Do you have a preference? You know, you asked me about what I like better, feel like your lacrosse. I, I kind of look at that as the fall. The fall is the development time, and I really do look forward to that, working with kids and seeing that light bulb go off for kids who couldn't really get it their freshman year, and then it, they do their sophomore year, or just seeing that improvement. I love that in the fall, and there's no pressure. And the kids are all working hard because they're not those that play and those that don't. They don't know that yet. And so they give their all, and you really have that opportunity to to see that development from them. So I really enjoy that. We also get to know them more. You get to do a lot of meetings where we do a lot of what you know tough questions to them and soul searching and getting to know each other. I love the team bonding stuff. I love the leadership stuff. So we do that all fall. So I love that part of it. Preparing for a game is also really fun, right? I love to create drills. Like people are like, can I have a drill book? I'm like, I just sort of create drills with where we're not doing things well. <laughs> so, you know, we're not clearing the ball well. Let's work on X, Y, and Z with this. Like what will work with that? Not a specific – I don't look in drill books. I don't really do that. Fall, we do more drills, but it's more of how do we prepare? What didn't we do well in the game we just had? And how do we get better at that? And then how do we prepare for this team that we're playing? How are we going to beat them? They do this well. we got to stop this. What does their defense do? How do we – what motions, what plays are going to work against that defense? So that's also really fun, just preparing for teams and getting your, your team ready. And being the underdog and beating some of those teams is just – that's really fun. The tougher games for me are the ones that you should win and you should win them big. And you're just always a little stressed in those games because you want to get the other kids in who don't get in because they give so much of their time. And if your starters aren't taking it seriously, you know, it's just those games are when the score is really big. You just feel bad because then the kids, all your kids get in and then they're cheering like they won a national championship. And it's just I don't you know, I've been on that end and that's really hard. And so I don't like those games that much. I like to, you know, win by four, five. That's okay. <laughs> but you love the close games too. To pull those out are really fun. The ones that you lose that you should win or that you know you could have won, then you don't sleep. <laughs> so in season, I don't sleep as well as I do out of season. Uh, love to win or hate to lose, which is more I hate, driving. You. I hate to lose. I hate to lose. And when it comes to being the head coach at the University of Pennsylvania, 
what is your favorite part? You know, there's a couple of favorite parts. I think one is, you know, we are an Ivy League. And I think some people, and again, we get called Penn State all the time, which drives me insane. I wish That's Benji- amazing to me. that, And I know, I know. It happen- that it still happens in the year of our Lord, 2023. Yes. People are still making that mistake. I mean, but anyway. Benjamin Franklin, brilliant guy. I wish he had named it Franklin. It's not <laughs> Franklin, whatever. But, um, you know, it's just people don't know, right? They see Penn and Penn State. But what I love about Penn, and I've worked at other, you know, another Ivy is that, you know, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton are always Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. But the type of person Penn gets, it's, it's a grittier type of kid. The city, the Philadelphia is a grittier type of city. It's like we always have a chip on our shoulders. We always feel like the underdog. Even when we were winning a lot, we tended to not get a high ranking. And, like, it's, and I'm okay with that. Like I like those type of kids who are like, you're going to come here, you're going to work. And this is what we do in Philadelphia, and this is what we do at Penn, and we're going to work. So the people at Penn... I love the people who stay at Penn, who work at Penn, get that, that we might have to work a little harder than some of our peers. But they love that. And they love that win over the team that should win, right? And I think you pride yourself as you talk about winning and losing. I mean, you know, beating our rivals, Princeton, is a wonderful, <laughs> amazing feeling. And I've told my team that. That is, well, you know, to have that to, to know that because you respect them so much is great. So I think those wins as are really big. I think that you know, you feel that you have a lot of people backing you and cheering for you and are going to be there even in the tough times. But that grittiness of of Penn and Philly, I love. Even though, you know, we are an elite school, I think Penn the students have a lot of fun. They work really hard, but they also have a great time, and they want to be a part of the city, which I think is fabulous. Karen Corbett, thanks so much for coming in. This was great. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank University of Pennsylvania head women's lacrosse coach Karen Corbett for coming in studio and being our guest this week. If you like the show, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.